0: You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode seven, Making Tolkien a Neocon, part two, the second of a two part series in which co hosts Kenny and Sam discuss one of the few full length books devoted entirely to the subject of Tolkien in politics The Hobbit Party by Jonathan Witt and J.W. Richards. Listeners to the Entmoot Podcast. This, as I said in the introduction, is the second part of our two-part series on Jonathan Witt and J.W. Richards' The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom That Tolkien Got and the West Forgot. I'm joined, as always, by Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you doing? I am doing exceptionally strange right now. I'm so
1: fucking sleep deprived.
0: Yeah, so this is the perfect time to record because your, your neurons are nice and loose. Yes, I'm feeling very loose. We'll get lots of good takes. So I want to pick up right where we left off last time, which was chapter four of The Hobbit Party. Uh, If you haven't heard part one of uh, our two-part series, we definitely recommend you go back and listen to that. You'll get a lot of the context for what this book is uh, because we're just going to jump right in. So chapter four of The Hobbit Party is their first chapter that is about Lord of the Rings instead of uh, instead of The Hobbit. So this is really, this is a, a clear um, sort of uh, break point in the book, where before this they're talking about The Hobbit, and then after they're talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, I will say, uh, to start off on a positive note, I did think that, uh, I thought that the best point that this book made is contained in this chapter, uh, and it's something that I hadn't considered, and I actually... I have nothing but positive words to say about this particular point, and Sam, I don't think we've discussed this yet, but uh, they read on page 71, A fellowship of dwarf, elf, man, wizard, and hobbits, Frodo and eight companions, are set out from Rivendell with a single purpose, sneak the ring deep into Sauron's realm of Mordor, slipping past all of his soldiers, spies, and watchtowers, and throw it into the one fire hot enough to destroy it, the fires of Mount Doom thus does tolkien turn the whole quest genre on its head the fellowship will pursue a quest not to obtain something precious and status enhancing but to destroy the very object that whispers most seductively of glorious power without limit i think that that's a really cool observation and a good point i agree
1: and their their discussion of like um inspiration versus domination it like i I would maybe word a bit differently than they do but it's also like fairly reasonable
0: yeah, I and I, I actually I hadn't considered though, you know their point that they make about the quest genre. Uh, I think that's not only is it is it correct. I also think that it's a it's a a useful observation that there actually is a sort of subversion of expectations here um, in in the sort of general uh, structure of the quest genre. Right, normally you have a hero going to uh, retrieve some you know awe inspiring item. Uh, this is exactly the opposite. At the beginning, Frodo has the awe-inspiring item, and the quest is to destroy it. And so it's a you know it's a renunciation of um, of of uh, of corruption and sort of like a triumph of you know the human will or I guess the Hobbit will, right? That that the the object of the quest is to destroy this this tempting item, and of course, Frodo fails at the end, and uh, it, the ring is only destroyed by happenstance, so that or, or actually by. Uh, you know, but inadvertently through Smeagol, Gollum's desire. Um, but uh, still, I thought that that was a really interesting point, and um, I want to want to commend Wit and Richards for making it. So now, after uh, after that, getting that out of the way, I think it's now time for the rest of this episode to basically just shit all over this book. Yeah, there are numerous
1: uh, uh, terrible takes, strange tangents, um, unnecessary diatribes. Yes, uh, I think that's like the best way to describe. Um, a lot of the rest of it are is uh, diatribes.
0: Yeah, diatribes is a good word. Um, that chapter, not much happens in that chapter, other than that that point about the quest genre. They're kind of introducing the um, they're kind of introducing the, the their discussion of Lord of the Rings. Uh, chapter five is called the Free Peoples and the Master of Middle Earth. They do a lot of discussing uh, what they call the theology of Middle Earth, and also. Uh, free will and the conditions for freedom, as they say, right? And they they make you know, just like from the last episode we were talking about, they they make a a bunch of just ridiculous points that are first of all like we think are wrong, but second of all are not even related to Tolkien. He's they spend uh, some time early on in this chapter. They they talk about what they call the behaviorists, uh, and they're referring specifically to uh, to B.F. Skinner in uh, psychology, and Bertrand Russell in uh, theology and philosophy. They're basically um, attacking Skinner and, and Russell. Uh, of course, Russell is famously an atheist, uh, and so they don't like that. But, um, and a socialist. And, right. They also don't like that. Uh, but Skinner, they're, they're attacking for, uh, quote, the belief that only sense data is real or knowable. Accordingly, Skinner viewed freedom as just so much nonsense. So the idea that y- you know the old philosophical debate about free will and uh, and where free will comes from, if it exists at all, of course, um, Witt and Richards take a uh, the, the Catholic view, right? That that free will is is uh, is a gift from God to uh, to humans that are uh, and then of course you know you use that free will to make your decisions between to p- between right and wrong and and good and evil and um that's also the catholic and and christian writ large uh justification for the existence of of evil right the the and they talk about this as well somewhat but you know the old debate of uh well if god is if god is good and god is omnipotent uh then why does evil and 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 suffering exist and uh you know the the catholic or christian Answer to that is because well well God uh, is not a uh, is not a dictator. He gives he 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 gifts free will to his creation, to to man. And also and, because we live in a fallen, craven world. As that's Tolkien right. is quick to point out. And that is as a that's a consequence of free will, right? Cuz True. Uh, yes. Eve eats the apple, right? Uh or or the fruit, I believe they say. It's not an apple. Um so, yeah, so that all comes from free will. That's the reason that evil exists is uh because God gives us the chance to to choose it, and some people are are tempted by it right and it's that's they're they're basically they make the argument that you know there's no there's no way to be redeemed if there's not the possibility of falling or of failing, right. Uh, redemption requires that you, that you actively choose it. If you're just given redemption, then were you really redeemed at all? So they call this sort of a, a materialist, uh, vision, uh, Skinner's vision, that is, that those explanations, you only need them, uh, with the absence of like, you know, observable or sense data or scientific data. It's the Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him, right? The advance of science to, you know, people like Skinner and Nietzsche, uh, makes the, the need for, for uh, God as an explanatory device irrelevant. Witt and Richards, uh, you know, they, they get on their bullshit again, basically. And here's something from page 92. He says, This moral vision of Tolkien's is, once again, completely out of keeping with the materialistic assumptions in elite 20th century culture, which are increasingly trickling down to 21st century pop culture. Moral distinctions have no place in a materialistic mindset. Of course, your atheist friend knows that murder is wrong, and he will be morally outraged if someone steals his car. But a consistent materialist must be committed to explaining away all such moral judgments, including his own. So, that... I mean, that line in particular, I think, again, to get into the Richard Hofstadter mode of pathologizing, but I think you get a little bit of a sense of, like, the only critique that they can really level here is that, oh, well, if you're going to be as rigid and ridiculous with your ideology as we are with ours, then clearly it leads you to ridiculous conclusions. And it's like, yeah, like, Witt and Richards clearly are, like, truly believe that to be moral, you have to be not only religious, but, like, their particular kind of religious.
1: I'd go, I'd go further and, and, and go so far as to say that there's, like, a subtext
0: that's, like, if we weren't this particular type of religious, we'd be sociopaths. Yeah, that's the other thing, and that's the the Hofstadter mode of pathologizing, which I am totally down to do, of, like, I, I feel like it kind of is, uh, I feel like it kind of gives up the game a little bit when these these types of 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 thinkers or writers or whoever say like well if it wasn't for god how would you know that murder's wrong. And it's like dude if I don't really have to think about it that much. <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah, I, I exactly. Exactly. Like like I mean and and you know like my experience of it is like no actually it seems kind of evident to me that it's like the religious convictions about murder being wrong. And this, is, of course, is coming from, a, a you know, the position of a mostly secular person. But, like, the, the religious convictions about murder being wrong and about certain, you know, uh, about certain, like, moral precepts that, that, like, every culture basically develops on their own. And it's like, you know, no, the religious ideas about those come out of the fact that we innately know that murder is wrong. I mean, it's the same reason that, like... I, I hate to be like, well, actually Darwin, because they make fun of that view, but it's right though. That we've
1: evolved to not needlessly kill each other because right. it's bad for the reproduction of the species. Like Yeah.
0: yeah. Like that's obviously correct. Uh, yes. that that's that's why we think that, you know, that's why we feel and like I also, you know, I do at some level relate to Wit and Richards in in the the idea of like, no, it has to be more than that. Like, if that's the case, then and this is me speaking as, as them, right? Like, if that's the case. Then how do we not just like you know? Then it's not grounded in anything, right? The only reason that murder is wrong is because we feel that it's wrong, and you know, someone could feel differently.
1: But also, like, but also, like, no, we have like well thought out philosophical frameworks which oftentimes overlap with like their religious tradition, which tell us why
0: murder is wrong. You know, I mean, yes, yeah, I like. I'm trying. I'm. I'm sort of. Trying to give them some, uh, not some, not credit, but like, you know, kind of trying to, to see this from their perspective a bit. And I, and, you know, I, I understand, I understand like part of it, of the idea that like morality to, to mean anything, at least again, to, to them, that it needs to be grounded somewhere. And God is sort of the ultimate way to say, well, no, it's wrong because like God tells us it's wrong. I'll say
1: that like, like this much. This sort of tangent they go on is like m- more on topic and less insane than I honestly think everything else we're going to discuss this episode.
0: Yeah, that that's true. That's true. And I mean Like wh- just wait till we
1: get to Walmart and also like the Battle of Thermopylae. Like oh my god.
0: Yeah, those are two those are two highlights. Like this is uh yeah, this discussion about like free will, it is it is mostly grounded like in in in, you know, genuine like catholic teaching, catholic theology, like that is mainstream and uh, and you know, well understood. Again, this is not far from the things that I learned, you know, growing up catholic. They so they they do start they start attacking uh darwinian materialists as they say. Which means Jews, which means Jews.
1: <laughs> not actually, but maybe.
0: Um I mean you, you <laughs> like that is where, you know, Thankfully, they don't really go into the creationism that apparently is both of their life's work. Yes, yes, um, yes. Excuse me, did he mean to say intelligent design, actually? Yes, intelligent design, excuse me. Um, (laughs) the, The talking about Darwinian materialists is doing that thing that... Um, people like Witten and Richards will will always do, which is to say, like, well, actually, uh, the, the 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 populists and the progressives in the early twentieth century, they were they were racist eugenicists, and it's because of Darwin. To which Sam and I say, yes. Isn't it so funny how these guys are
1: both like like look through their twitters like. Uh, I feel less confident saying this about fucking wit, but like Richards is like just fucking racist. Like he's he's dog whistling, <laughs> if not going way beyond that. Like like every other fucking tweet, and then he has yeah. the fucking audacity to be like, oh, actually, it's because this these these thinkers from the nineteenth century were racist, and then they influenced later stuff. That that's actually all the racist shit, even though. I'm being exponentially more racist in, like, all of my fucking rhetoric than all these people who I hypothetically hate today. Or, or do hate today. I believe that they hate the libs, but, you know. Exactly, it's just, exactly. It's like, yeah. this isn't, like, a novel. Like, me and Kenny aren't making any new points. But, like, just, like, this weird soapboxing of, like – and it's such a strange thing that the right does where it's like, okay, we're going to both, like, sort of pander to, like, our racist audience and then be like, oh, it was actually, you know, Republicans – Voted for the Civil Rights Act, and uh Democrats were Horatio <laughs> Seymour in the slavery Party,
0: like, yeah, it's so fucking relevant, dude, like incredible point or you know the, or they they post that picture uh, from the nineteen twenty four Democratic convention of the of the of the Klansmen in New York City oh you're just telling me now that Woodrow Wilson was extremely racist. I had no idea, oh wow, thank you, and so that means the administrative state is bad because Wilson also did that, oh yeah, so moving forward, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, wait. I was going to say one more thing uh, on this to- on this theology topic. They do make another a, a point that I think is it, it is dumb, and that is uh, they make the point that um, the fact that this is on page ninety seven. The fact that we enjoy freedom is itself a sign of the existence of God. So they they take this a little further, which is to say, if you're an atheist, you actually cannot believe in free will and like have your ideology be consistent. I mean, you know, they sort of take you each step of the way on that argument. It's not worth getting into. But that, you know, you end up at a point that is so patently absurd. I mean, I am not particularly religious. And I also, like, think free will exists. Whereas I am semi-religious and and actually don't think free will
1: exists. But that's neither here nor there. Me and Kenny have talked about this in the past. But that's actually completely
0: divorced from our religious views, but I digress. For for most people, like, your everyday experience is like, yeah, free will is real because I, you know, I decided I was going to have tea instead of coffee or whatever. Like, that is most people's, like, you know, their their lived experience, as, as some might say. And um, so it's like, yeah, no, you don't have to – I don't have to be like, yeah, the reason I chose to have tea instead of coffee is – because God let me choose that, like I think the theology there is—I uh, I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's right, um, even if you can have you know reasonable disagreements on on the existence of free will, which Sam and I have. Okay, now moving on. I, I apologize. That was something I wanted to briefly talk about. But and I, I really, I really want to qu- quickly want to want to quickly just touch on a few
1: other sort of weird things in this chapter. I mean, sure. like. I mean, there's the whole thing about, like, that, that you put down in the notes about how they say the nanny state prevents redemptive suffering, which I didn't even catch, which is wild. On 94, yeah, they talk about how, like, the the fucking, like, welfare state makes it hard to have the suffering you need for redemption. Also, they have, they, they cite Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who, if anyone is unfamiliar, is, like, a, a, a sort of, like, centrist philosopher and statistician. Um... And it is the strangest fucking weird shoehorn citation for someone who undoubtedly would fucking hate them. And I also need to emphasize this is like a contemporary working dude. He's like 60. It's like what? Where, where is this even coming
0: from? It's one, the, it's one of the many bizarre citations in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, thank you for, I thought that was in the next chapter. So thank you for, for pointing this out. Yeah. So redemptive suffering is, they don't actually use that phrase, but that is the, the theological phrase for, you know, emulating the suffering of Christ for one to attain redemption. Right. And, um, the, the reason I put that in is I thought that that was a really, really interesting thing that they're doing. And this is again, not unique to them. And the fact that they're tying it to Lord of the Rings is, is hilarious, but like, the, the idea that, like I was saying before, the theology is, you know, that humans are given gifted free will from God so that they can choose to do good, which is what you do like on the, on the path to redemption, basically, or on the, on the path to, to being saved, right? Uh, and that's redemption from, you know, the original sin of, of Adam and Eve. Um, but here, what they're doing is saying that the nanny state, which is their term, you know, the the, the modern welfare state, uh, is it stifles the, quote, stifles the development of freedom for excellence. And then they start talking about the the example that they first give as if to get the libs on their side is the example of bailing out banks that ought to experience costs as well as benefits. This is kind of an example of, uh, like, A a weird, perverted form of horseshoe theory happening. It is. Also, like, I I don't even want to get into the whole bank
1: bailout discourse, but, like, uh, it's just so strange that they mention this.
0: Right. Right. It is them sort of saying like, oh, we'll see. We're really principled. We believe in in the free market and we don't think the government should have gotten involved to to bail the banks out either. And so we're just like you, you know, uh, you far leftists, even though we would probably genocide you if we were in power. Even
1: though though we want to Pinochet all of you. And also like this is like this weird thing. Like dance they do and I think this is the case for a lot of fucking libertarians where it's like They don't seem to understand or at least pretend that it's not the case that the fucking state creates markets Like you can't have markets without the state enforcing like Contract law and sales and the standards by which business is done. Like the second you have markets where like you can't just steal shit from people, you already have state coercion.
0: Yeah, so cite your source, David Graeber, right?
1: I I will say David Graeber writes about this. He uh, like he didn't invent this, and I think people have understood it for a long time. He just he just puts it very well. But I also, um, you know, want to give a quick shout out to to Mike Konzakal and his excellent book Freedom from the Market, which is like quite short and people should read. Although people should also read. Uh, David Graeber, even though I don't agree with him on everything.
0: He's really interesting and cool. Rest in peace to the homie. He is. Yeah. Rest in peace to David Graeber. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, like, I think that this argument, it's this really interesting marriage of the, uh, the idea of redemptive suffering and this stuff about how the nanny state, uh, it, it shields people from risk. You know, you, you, the, the state is preventing you from exercising the range of your free will. And then, of course, you know, like the, the consequences of your actions, which would also have been, you know, understood as, as being ordained by God or, or, or whatever. This is also
1: just so inimical to, like, Catholic social teaching.
0: How much do you want to bet that Witt and Richards are full-on set of vacantists? Oh, my God. There's no way they fuck with Pope Francis. They definitely are. They definitely are like no, he's a, he's illegitimate. A and like they probably and when you're like who was the last legitimate pope? Like Benedict, and they probably have some like weird like no, actually the last legitimate pope was in the 1400s. They picked the wrong anti-pope or some shit. Like <laughs> and like they have the lineage
1: Notably, one of the only things they probably have in common with Tolkien is opposition to Vatican II. I don't know that they're opposed to Vatican II. I <laughs> bet they are, which, as we've talked about in previous episodes, as was Tolkien when he would loudly
0: recite the Mass in Latin while everyone yeah, else was doing yeah. it in English. These two guys definitely, like mispronounce all the Latin words and still try to say Latin mass. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Anyway, sorry. That was just, I just realized, cause I'm, we're thinking about Catholic social teaching and like Pope Francis is very much in that, in that long tradition of uh, a more sort of left leaning interpretation of Catholic social teaching, which I of course think is the, the correct understanding. Um, but uh, for a very long time, a view closer to Witten Richards actually sort of was the, uh, the the view of, of, of the Vatican under, you know, Benedict and, and John Paul II. They're much more conservative. A lot of, especially with John Paul II, a lot of his uh, worldview is is focused on anti-communism and and so sort of backing himself into a corner of sort of being, you know, very pro-capitalist and pro-West uh, with some lip service to sort of the old ideas uh, from, you know, Pope Leo and Rerum Navarm that we've talked about that are blatantly anti-capitalist. And of course, uh, Witt and Richard's a you know, convenient that they only talk about how uh, socialism is incompatible with Catholic teaching.
1: Yeah, real, real, real ca- real capitalism's never actually been tried. We don't know what it would be like. No one's ever done real capitalism.
0: Oh my God, Sam, you hit the nail on the head. They're, they are literally like the right-wing college tankies. Yeah, literally. I guess that's enough on this chapter. Uh, and then okay. we get into chapter six, which is my favorite. The just war book. of the ring. Sam, do you want to talk about this this chapter? Okay, yeah. So, this chapter
1: is where we truly, like, untether from anything really relating to Tolkien. It seems like... So, I don't know. I, I, don't, I wouldn't call these guys neocons today, just based off their Twitter. I think they were still in, in the sort of neocon tradition in 2014. Although, honest to God, these guys, their views are just whatever Fox News is saying, let's be clear. But they have this long thing about just war philosophy. And it is the most fucking pedantic stupid thing I have read in my life. They devote like, what is this? Like four pages to the idea that, oh, most people either think that are are pacifists or they think war is inherently evil, but sometimes you need to do it. Or they're just bloodthirsty, crazy people. But actually there's this other secret esoteric third thing where you (laughs) think that sometimes War and violence can be justified if you have to do it to do to do good things. What and the examples of this, which obviously everyone in the world fucking agrees with this, like, yeah, there's a few committed pacifists out there. And they're like, oh, actually, an example of the just war philosophy, and they use capital J, capital W every single time, and it's so annoying. Yeah, of course. Is that like uh is that like fighting the Nazis to prevent the Holocaust or like fix the Holocaust was justified. And it's like, yeah, everyone besides like literal Nazis and Michael Tracy, who, let's be clear, is a literal Nazi, agree with you. Like, this is the least controversial thing you could possibly say. Stop trying to act like you're like edgy for saying like it was good to liberate the Nazi concentration camps. But <laughs> my favorite line is, If you hold a precept that blurs the distinction between Allied soldiers liberating a Nazi concentration camp and hijackers flying civilian planes into the World Trade Center in 2001, you should discard the precept. No one holds that fucking precept. There's like seven dudes and they all write for like... The worst publication they all just have substacks, let's be clear. There's like, yes, like no one holds this view. Like you're a, like ninety-nine percent of people in the world to some extent agree with you here. Like, why did you go over that? And like, yeah, obviously Tolkien agrees, everyone agrees with this. Where we really just like jump the shark in this book, and I think like is the first time where it's like truly like what is going on? I Maybe not the first time. <laughs> One of the best examples of what is going on here is on page 120, when they are ostensibly 20 pages into discussing just, capital J, W, capital W, just war philosophy, is when they say um, something about, like, oh, the modern West, like, needs to, like, uh, it, 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 o- always treats war as a necessary evil. It never treats it as, as, um, you know, a a sort of virtuous thing in itself that it can sometimes be. And then they say, the poverty of this tendency is well illustrated in a historical example of its dramatic opposite. And you think to themselves, what are they going to bring up? Like,
0: where's this going? Are they going to bring up, uh, you know, Auschwitz? Are they going to bring up... uh... In
1: 480 BC, 300 (laughs) Spartans, (laughs) along with... 400 thespians and 300 Thebians held back the invading Persian hordes at the Battle of Thermopylae. Near the end, some of them retreated, but 300 Spartans, led by King Leonidas, held strong and were annihilated. Was this foolish pagan defiance? And then they go on to spend another quite lengthy
0: paragraph talking about how, like, the fucking battle of the 300 was epic. a per, uh, Person <laughs> whose entire political philosophy is based off of uh, aughts blockbusters. It's like,
1: my favorite thing is that like, they could have just been like, well, A, they could have found an actually relevant example. Um, and it's been like, here's the example, but they already did with like the Holocaust and fighting the Nazis. So yeah. Instead, they're like, the Battle of the 300 was based. Like, I feel like it's impossible to have takes on like, like the virtue of <laughs> military battles and ancient priests. Yeah, I think
0: this is the funniest moment in the book. It's it is it's hysterical, and you can also you can imagine like Jonathan Witt calling up Jay Richards and being like, "Jay, Jay, the, the editor said we need a few more pages. The, the 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 publisher is uh the publisher's upset. It's not long enough." And Jay's like, "Oh my God, we could we could talk about the three <laughs> hundred. We could get like a solid two hundred words in <laughs> describing the Battle of Thermopylae." All right, we're gonna we're gonna keep trucking along here. Chapter seven is as on the scouring of the Shire. Um, I think Sam, if your favorite part of the book is the Thermopylae rant, I think my favorite part of the book is within this chapter. It is about human fertility, uh, and. <laughs> uh, like many of these types of writers and, and individuals and thinkers, Witt and Richards are obsessed with human fertility and birth rates. And of course, like we mentioned on the last episode, it's not for what Sam and I would probably agree are, you know, good reasons to 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 care about, like, fertility rates, such as, you know, uh, labor like shortages per- you know? labor shortages the you know the uh, more people means means you know more science to, uh, to to find cures for things and you know you you reduce like net suffering any of that stuff no they're obsessed with fertility rates because racism <laughs> yeah. um yeah <laughs> but, but first, I do, I do want to mention, this is not something that we're going to really, you know, spend a lot of time on because, of course, they do this. But on page 138, uh, they do say, and, and, and listen carefully to this, uh, this wording, Robert Plank notes several parallels between Saruman's Shire, talking about the, the scouring of the Shire in the last, uh, couple, last couple chapters of, of The Return of the King, Saruman's Shire and two varieties of fascist socialism. That rose to prominence between the world wars. Hitler's National Socialist German Workers' Party, and then in parentheses they write the Nazi Party, in case you didn't know, and the Italian fascism headed by Benito Mussolini, a longtime member of the Italian Socialist Party before breaking with it over the question of neutrality in World War One.
1: He was, he was a socialist in the same way that, and I, I'm going to expose myself as terminally online here, but that weird fucking guy Jackson Hinkle, is that his name? The patriotic MAGA communist? Like... <laughs> Oh, my God. They were socialist in the way that he is a communist. Like, uh, Which is to say not. Which is to say not. Yeah. Which is to say not. I mean, in his, like, er, some of his earliest writings, Hitler explicitly talks about the idea of, like, what is it? It's, like, virtuous capital versus, like, predatory capital. And it's, like, no, it's actually not all capital that's bad. It's that, like... Evil capital
0: is bad, and evil capital is Jewish capital, but, like, German capital is actually not terrible. We're not the only people to ever be like, oh, you know how when conservatives say that Hitler was a socialist, um, they're both lying and wrong and also gaslighting? There, yeah, I mean, there were some pseudo-socialists
1: in the early Nazi party who were still
0: absolutely terrible, but then Hitler assassinated all of them, so, there yeah, you go. Exactly! <laughs> exactly! Like, so, I mean, y- you know, listen... Uh, neither Sam nor I would accuse Witt or Richards of being straight up Nazis, which because they're but, not, they're not, they're not, they're just not. But like, they are quite literally saying, "Well, you know the when you when you say you're a socialist, this is what you support." Hitler. It's also worth noting that someone who did not do this, who
1: also hated socialism, was uh, J.R. Tolkien, who. Uh, in his letters, where he complains about
0: both socialism and fascism, makes a clear distinction between the two as different things. Yes, he does. He does. He he always talks about the USSR and Nazi Germany as both being evil and contemptible, uh, but as as being quite distinct. He he does make those distinctions in multiple letters when he's talking about how bad both Hitler and Stalin are. And it's not like he was some fucking lib, right? Like, oh my god, <laughs> no, he was. <laughs> He was explicitly, like, anti-liberal, like, Big Al liberal. Yes, yes, Sam, in the way that you, me, Jonathan Witt, and Jay Richards are all liberals, Tolkien was against all of that. Yes, yes, yes. On on that point, I just wanted to, you know... That w- went a little longer than I was expecting. But, you know, they do the classic thing of, did you know Hitler was a socialist? So, and that's just like a little passing a passing note. So let's get to the fertility they rant. They can't help
1: themselves. They can't help themselves. They literally, <laughs>
0: no, they cannot help, like, writing down whatever Sean Hannity said last night. It is, again, remarkable that this
1: book is, like, not even exact 200 pages long, and yet so much of it is filler.
0: And not at all related to what the book is ostensibly about. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's go. Let's get into this. Because this is, Sam, as the Thermopylae part is your favorite, this is my favorite. Because it comes out of left field and they hit it hard. First, they start talking about. Uh, they call it human This starts on page 139. Sam, who is the, uh, like, philosopher-scientist guy that this, like, idea of the less humans the better is associated with? Who is that? Uh, Tom, uh, Malthus. Not a good guy. Very notably, a bad dude. And there are, for sure, like, people who are really um, ardent, like, environmentalists, for example, who, like, genuinely would say, like, there needs to be less people, or, like, you know they might be china one child policy apologists or something right that it's like yeah
1: look and 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 me and Kenny don't hold those views but i think you can hold them without without being malthus and without being an
0: insane racist exactly yeah the the views are not inherently racist i think that they're they're wrong generally but i'd agree but they i think a lot of people hold them in good faith and they can be well reasoned agreed but so, of course, as, as, as of course, they have to do, Witt and Richards start talking about humanophobia because they're saying that in Tolkien's work, humanity is not an enemy of the Ents. That's the one example that they go to, right? The Ents are the main representation of unspoiled nature, or I guess nature that is becoming spoiled uh, in, in, in the story, and... Um, and I'm sorry, I just thinking about this now, I'm, it's even more ridiculous than, than, I, than I thought, because it's like, okay, so they're talking about what they claim is a misreading of Tolkien by portraying humanity as the enemy of the Ents. And like, I would agree that the idea that yes, humanity is not the enemy of the Ents, industrialization is the enemy of the Ents, or put differently, like modernity or capitalism or socialism, right? But, but like, it's, it's, so- it's Saruman, who is, like, the very representation of, 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 the, of the coercive power of, you know, whoever holds power, whether it be capital or, uh, or elected power or, or, or whatever. It's very clear that, like, humanity, yeah, is not the enemy of the Ents, but, like, humans, some humans and what they wrought is the enemy of nature. They say there's a little noticed theme in The Lord of the Rings— that a culture's lack of fertility is the effect and cause of cultural decline, a theme of particular relevance today because the environmental movement has become aggressively committed to minimizing human fertility. Then they give this great example, which they say, uh, they do qualify by saying, to give an extreme example, which is how you know that they're going to give an example that they are then going to say represents a- everyone in the environmental movement. Um in 2006, the Texas Academy of Science gave Eric Pianca its Distinguished Texas Scientist Award. In his speech, Pianca reportedly fantasized about a mutant Ebola virus unburdening the natural environment by wiping out 90% of the human population. He was given a standing ovation. Okay, so I think reportedly is probably doing a lot of work. If this happened, yeah, that's, cr- that's crazy and dumb. But like, you know, I didn't even look into this. I just read that and I was like, yeah, they're just lying. The standing ovation is the most absurd part. You know what? Here, wait, let's do some on the spot research. Okay, let's see. Eric Pianca. Let's, let's look this guy up. So let's see. Texas Academy of Science speech. Okay. The, there is a section on his Wikipedia page. Here is his actual quote. I have, no, I have not read this before. I have two grandchildren and I want them to inherit a stable earth, but I fear for them. Humans have overpopulated the earth and, in the process, have created an ideal nutritional substrate on which bacteria and viruses will grow and prosper. We are behaving like bacteria growing on an agar plate, flourishing until natural limits are reached or until another microbe colonizes and takes over, using them as their resource. Yeah,
1: it's notable in the, in the, in the, and this guy, it, it sounds like a bad rant, but it's notable, yeah. and this is reported by CBC, that he mentions A, that he thinks we need fewer people. B, the only virus he's identified that could kill 90% of people would be Ebola. And then three, that he does not actually want to see humans die. He doesn't have ill will towards anybody. Quote, I've got two granddaughters, man. I'm putting money in a college van for my granddaughters. I'm worried about them. So yeah, I wouldn't agree with what he says. It sounds like a, a, a pretty whack take, but he's not actually calling for mass death. A, B, nowhere in any of these reports is there any mention of a fucking standing ovation. Like they just made that shit up.
0: Yeah, it does say, as a consequence of the, on Wikipedia, as a consequence of the controversy, Pianca and members of the Texas Academy of Science received death threats. According to Pianca, his daughters were worried about his and their safety, and his life had been, quote, turned upside down by right-wing fools. A- anyway, this is, you know, I don't want to do what they do and, and and go on and pick out these dumb, like, isolated examples of, like, one person who says something weird. I, I disagree with his his premise about overpopulation, but... Like, I don't think that it is inherently absurd. And it's also like, he's talking about his grandkids, you know, like it's, I think it's coming from a place of, of genuine distress and compassion, right? This is, and and of course, Witt and Richards do all they can to completely dehumanize it because that's what they do, right? They call this an extreme example. And then of course they use that as being, this is what everyone believes. They then give some incredibly thin evidence that there is this great celebration of fertility in Lord of the Rings, uh, There is one part where when they're talking about uh, Baragond in Gondor, Baragond briefly mentions to Pippin, there were always too few children in this city, describing Minas Tirith, Uh, which is, you know, to them, grand evidence that that Tolkien is saying, see, look, Gondor has a low birth rate. And that's why they're a declining civilization, because they're not reproducing at replacement level. I also want to really
1: quickly point out that on page 143, he does this thing where, or they do this thing where they say, um, you know, the canary in the coal mine is the growing challenge facing government-sponsored pension and retirement programs in Europe, Japan, and the United States, and that basically programs and pensions don't work as well when you have declining population rates, which is why you need a replacement birth rate. This is not an insane take, um... Now the obvious caveat to this is you can also get that population back by having immigration which they're obviously opposed to
0: but well and they're also keep in mind they're also opposed to the entire welfare state yes so their actual solution is just get rid of social security yeah like yeah. which this course, is not would, even a real issue. So
1: the sort of like little trick they play is they say this and it's not an insane point you know even though like like, like again like like declining population rates in Japan and soon China do present problems to those countries' labor forces and welfare rates. That is true. The thing is that this follows up them first saying, uh, at the same time, the pattern of precipitous fertility decline in developed societies is sufficiently widespread. Jews and Christians no longer have any rational basis for allowing talk of right away global population to convince them we've reached the expiration date on the biblical teachings that children are a blessing from the Lord and to be fruitful and multiply. Um, And then he, again, talks about, like, God's command for Jews and Christians, and he means Christians. He's not actually talking about Jews, I guess, besides Orthodox Jews who help fulfill their political mission. Yeah, or Bibi Netanyahu. or Yeah, fucking Netanyahu. Uh, So, like, when they talk about declining, like, population rates affecting pensions in Japan— it's completely divorced from the first thing they're talking about. They're just saying that so they appear like less insane racists because when they say Christians need to have more kids, what they mean is there needs to be more white babies because the places in the world which don't have declining birth rates are like in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia um, and and undesirables, a lot of whom are either people of color and or Muslim or Hindu. Like that's the underlying
0: subtext to all of this. Um, Yeah, But now let me tell you about the 1924 Democratic Convention where there were Klansmen. So the Democrats are racist. I also want to quickly remind people this is ostensibly a book about Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's very on on brand. It's very on topic. So they, they close out their fertility rant, which again goes on for about five pages uh and it, it 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 mentions lord of the rings tangentially uh like once they close out the the fertility specific rant this is this is my favorite sentence in the whole book because it's it's one of those things sam you know that meme that's it's like the the author's barely disguised fetish yes yeah yeah uh that's what this reminds me of so they say quote for the love of God and His highest creation, humanity, let's leave off the dated hand wringing about global overpopulation and join Sam Gandhi, Gandalf, and Tolkien in celebrating human fertility and the value of human and cultural flourishing. I don't know. Maybe it's my uh, maybe it's my association of like the word fertile and fertility with like like horny people online, but like. This reads like celebrating human fertility. I just like that's such a funny phrase to me that it makes me think that they're just like they're really just getting off writing this. Yeah, I I, I can't help but agree. So for those who don't know, right, there were five wizards that come over from the west. The Astari, the Astari, exactly. And uh, there's two that that we don't we don't know anything about. We don't hear from because they go far into the east. Notably, a really really quick nugget is the those two the blue wizards actually. A,
1: went over in, uh, I believe, the second age, whereas the other three, who we know about um, and feature in the books more prominently, obviously, came over in the third age. Also, Tolkien, in his um, letters and in his notes, which, you know, you can read about more, like, in the letters, also in, like, the history of Middle-earth, towards the end of his life, one thing he was preoccupied with was what happened to the Blue Wizards and also what's Radagast's role. And that's going to come up because they misrepresent the, the latter, uh, discussion, but it was not fully decided whether or not the blue wizards fulfilled their quest. So there's no real canon conclusion there.
0: Yeah. The, the three wizards that we know about that are in the main narratives of, of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, of course, are Gandalf, Saruman, and Radagast. Of course, Gandalf and Saruman are, are, uh, very main characters. Radagast is much more of a secondary character. He's, uh, you know, just like Gandalf is Gandalf the Grey, at least at the beginning, and Saruman is Saruman the White. Radagast is Radagast the Brown, and that's because Radagast, uh, it has, uh, he shits his pants. No, he is um, Radag- <laughs> smelly man, smelly he, boy. He's stinky. No, Radagast is a friend of the earth and a friend of living things.
1: They they have specific roles. Um, Saruman's is sort of like to like be the big guy fighting the bad dudes and project power. Gandalf is supposed to go around, you know, sort of talking to the various elves and humans, finding out what's going on, and sort of negotiate with people, mediate out things, and support people in a supportive role. And Radagast is supposed to get the animals and the beasts on the side of the good. They're sent over because um, the sort of—the Valar and the Maiar over in Valinor are increasingly sort of, like, less interventionist. So whereas in the past they would have, like, gone over themselves— they now just sort of send these emissaries. It's also worth noting, they did not just create these dudes. They don't have the authority to do that. They took older existing Maiar, like Olamir, who is a sort of lesser angel of empathy, um, who spent thousands of years uh, living with the elves, but he was so empathetic that he faded to invisibility and they turn him into Gandalf. So they take people who they think would be good at these roles or angels, and then they sort of um, accommodate them over. Radagast as we know in the narrative, is not really very present. Tolkien does say in a letter in, I think, 1934 that Radagast got too distracted by being a uh, like, uh, hippie, basically, and didn't end up saving the day, which uh, you know Witt and Richards sight. Notably, later in his life, in the 50s and 60s, uh, Tolkien changes this take and says, actually, Radagast did a good job. I just didn't get around to talking about him that much. So they're basically retconning um, an earlier take, uh, and, uh, of Tolkien and saying it's canon when it's not actually the canon take, so.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's great. This is a, this is a pro-Radagast podcast. We do not tolerate Radagast slander. Yeah, Radagast is based. He, Radagast is my favorite wizard. And on that note, we also do not tolerate any slander at all of Tevildo, Prince of Cats. Oh yeah, Tavilla, Prince of Cats. The real, the real heads know who we're talking
1: about when we say Tavilla, Prince of. Or people who have
0: listened to every episode of this podcast in detail. I was going to say, uh, for, for listeners who are, you know are still feeling a little bit confused about the Gandalf Saruman Radagast dichotomy, I can sum it up this way: the Kennedys. Saruman is uh, is Jack. Gandalf is Bobby, and Radagast is Ted. Oh my God! I was thinking we were gonna do a movie one, but that's fire. That's that's. Epic. Saruman is Jack Kennedy. Gan- he's you know he's, he's he projects power, but he's uh, he's he's vacuous. <laughs> Gandalf is, is is Robert Kennedy. You know he's a man of the people, right? He he he's he's empathetic toward the little guy. Would Radagast have done uh, Chappaquiddick? <laughs> that's why he never shows his face anywhere because there was you know there was a there was an incident with you know a young elf over in um the dying marshes Yeah the dying marshes <laughs> He was in a cart with <laughs> with a young maiden
1: I think this is a great segue to getting over to the final full chapter of the book which is you know what we've been talking about our favorite part of this but this actually has the best portion of the entire book, and we've been teasing this for two episodes now. (laughs) They don't just mention Walmart, they also mention Costco and Target. All things, all institutions that J.R.R. Tolkien would have hated with a burning passion
0: oh they all Sam don't forget they also mention uh, on page 152 Google Facebook circuit City borders and
1: Lehman Brothers <laughs> take it away and just explain to us their, their 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 take on this
0: stuff the floor is yours I I genuinely don't think I can sum this up it's incoherent this chapter is truly the most unrelated to Lord of the Rings. The Just War chapter is is it comes in second. This is so unrelated. There is for
1: example, there's a two-page portion where uh Jay talks about this farmer he knows and um biomimicry. <laughs> is it Farmer Cotton? <laughs> no, Joel Salatin. Oh
0: no, it's the other Tom Cotton that he knows. Facts. He talks about like
1: organic farming and you know what? There is not a single portion of this two pages that mentions Lord of the Rings uh, at all. In this entire subheading, it, it doesn't even come up a single time. Like, this is just, like, a hint at, like, the vibes in here. I also want to mention that they actually mention distributism, and then was Tolkien a distributist? And um, they get it so wrong. 152, 152 is where they quote Thomas Sowell, uh, one of the worst people, and then say... <laughs> Quote cool. Let's face it, for most of us, Walmart is not the favorite place to hang out. It isn't the least bit shire like, it's drab and fluorescent lit. Fortunately, no one is forced at gunpoint to shop or work at Walmart. Okay, uh, which is like basically cap, but regardless, uh, although maybe in today's uh, you know tight labor market, with that's a bit more true, but um. We don't even have to worry about big box stores swallowing up all the small stores. That's because just as there are economies of scale, so too are there diseconomies of scale. Oh! That's why new companies uh, spring up all the time. Google and Facebook and big companies disappear. Circuit City, Borders, and (laughs) Lehman Brothers.
0: Back on the, uh, sea, we like when the banks collapse. Yay! So uh, the the context for the, the Walmart thing, as much as I can even give context... I genuinely don't remember or understand what their connection is here to Tolkien, but they do say this, quote, The long and short of it is this. Many successful companies grow because they create wealth and serve their customers well. Large chain stores like Costco, Target, or Walmart grow not by some evil conspiracy, but because they enjoy greater economies of scale. They can buy, sell, and distribute in bulk, and they can negotiate lower prices prices with suppliers, not only because of the leverage they bring to the negotiating table, but because they vastly simplify marketing for the wholesalers selling to them. If you produce undershirts, and Walmart offers to buy 10 million of them, you can afford to sell your shirts near your cost of production and still make a handsome profit. I feel like the thing that prevents this from being like as incredible
1: as... The thermophobic discussion is that at this. Or fertility. F- or the fertility discussion is that it's like. It's so
0: rambling and strange that it's like hard to even understand. Yeah, it's like not connected and it's just like at Econ 101 textbook. Yeah. Oh, they also do talk about how. Uh, you know, the libs hate globalization, but globalization is good because it actually helps developing countries more than it helps us. Because, you know, look, without these jobs, you know, uh, may Making smartphones and uh, you know and 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 making clothing for like a half penny a year, you know that the, actually they wouldn't have, they would have even less, so they better be thankful for what they have. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, the, the fucking Bangladeshi
1: children dying in sweatshops should be thankful. Like, how the fuck are you going to say you're doing Catholic social teaching, or like or like vir- virtue when you're like all these like child fucking slaves should be grateful? Like Jesus Christ, it's also so funny because like I am so confident. That they are like, oh, globalism is bad and has led to America's weakening on the global stage. Right. That's and what like, I was going to say. Today.
0: Yeah. Like, this is a very 2014 take. If they wrote this book now, this ch- this chapter would be like, listen, due to globalization, the Shire's got a raw deal. Nothing is made in the Shire anymore. Yeah, it would be. I, I Honestly, I don't even want to talk about the distributist stuff. They say, even though Tolkien knew about and admired
1: this stuff... There's no evidence that he was it. Uh, what does that even mean? Oh, I I admire and like uh, this specific ideology, but that doesn't
0: mean I have it. Like I guess that can be a thing, but I'm but I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm guys. also not interested in if Tolkien was a distributist. They have they do a lot of yes. work with that was right. It's like yeah, yeah okay, yeah. but it's like. Everything that the distributists write about and care about, first of all, fits with Tolkien's entire worldview and ideology and identity as we know it, right? Being a, like, early to mid-century, deeply Catholic British thinker. It's like, yeah, that's kind of—they kind of were all in that mode, right? But also, like, it is so much easier— to look at the Shire and be like, yeah, that's basically what like bellick and Chesterton were writing about. Then like, oh yeah, this is exactly, this exactly aligns with uh, Milton Friedman. This is like Walmart. Yeah, or this is like Walmart. Like, I mean, come on. They also basically say, well, no, Tolkien, he, this is really what they're doing here. They say Tolkien wasn't a distributist. And that's because distributism is actually the same thing as socialism. And Tolkien was not a so- socialist. And they ma- they make that argument by drawing, like, two quotes from the servile state and saying, what he's saying here kind of sounds like what Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto. They're the same. They're both socialists. And, and then they follow this up on on page
1: 158. This is just, like, another, like, incredible little, like, blurb in here. Uh, the typical life of the media- medieval European and Englishman was to quote Thomas Hobbes, "'Poor, nasty, brutish, and short.'" Which is so funny that like, they they take like, like the fucking like default Thomas Hobbes quote, and then they're like, to quote Thomas Hobbes, it's like, we looked up top political thinkers on Wikipedia and we're gonna quote their pop, top quotes, right? <laughs> and then also, That fucking quote is not even about that. It's about man in the state of nature before the state, which is definitionally not the medieval European. The dude was fucking writing in this in like the early 17th century. He explicitly is talking about pre-state societies. Like they get this so wrong. It is mind boggling. It doesn't even matter. Like it's not even relevant to anything they say, but it is mind boggling that one of these guys has a fucking PhD in, in philosophy or like theology from Princeton and like, gets
0: the most basic intro political theory Thomas Hobbes wrong. Like, that is wow. Yeah, no, but Sam, Sam, see that you got it all wrong. I think you're forgetting uh, government bad. Oh, true,
1: true, 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 true.
0: I did want to point out another pedantic thing that just bothered me, and this will be the last thing we mentioned, and it's going to be kind of anticlimactic, unless, Sam, you have anything else to add after this. But on page 164, they say, for example, many distributists call for a family living wage In which the government or a cartel-like guild with government support would stipulate the minimum salary employers could pay an employee who has a wife and children. First of all, of course, wife and children. Anyway, uh, the goal is to increase family ties by building an economy in which a man can make enough to support his family without having to take a second job. Uh, And then the goal is surely worthy. The problem is that the policy would yield a very different result. Then they do the classic thing that these types of guys do where it's always the like, well, actually, if you raise the minimum wage, then they're just going to pay less or they're going to hire less. So it's not going to work. They say that, well, actually, they would just since they have to pay more for people who, who uh, who have children, they would just hire people who are unmarried. And then that would actually incentivize people to not get married. And it's like, dude. The solution to this problem is like implementing that policy, but doing it through like a tax rebate or something like the obvious answer, which is that it's not, it's not at all related to the employer. I I don't know when I'm reading this sort of thing. I don't know if the people writing it are just like pea brain or if they are like just, you know, very intentionally saying this is the only way it can be. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm so, I'm so exhausted. You know, it's fun to, it's fun to shit on them and their, and their, and, and more than their bad takes, it's fun to shit on their, their sloppy writing and bizarre rants. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I can't, I, I, I think, can't, yeah, I think you'd agree with this. I can't recommend this book to anyone. Um, all all the good parts of it we've already pulled and, and described to you. And in between it, it's just so boring and and like sloppily written. And I, you know, me and Kenny obviously are 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 we are fucking lefties, but I do think there's a place for like a good book doing a conservative interpretation of Tolkien. Hren sort of does that. Hren is in some sense a conservative. Um, but it's really disappointing that this is the this is the real one that exists.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I wish this I wish this book was a lot better. I really do. Yeah, I, I do too. Like, like I, me
1: and Kenny are not like, oh, you disagree with us, so we're just going to shit on your stuff. I think we both have a certain appreciation for a lot of, you know, conservative writers, like J.R.R. Tolkien. Yep. Um, And, like, this book is just bad. Witt and Richards should focus uh, less of their time on writing bad books and instead spend more time on Twitter. Yes. Uh, which they already do.
0: Yes. Spend more time tweeting and, you know, spend more time on, on your intelligent design uh, crusades. Uh, you're going to win that battle. I believe in you guys. Uh, yeah,
1: it's very relevant. People are really talking about yeah, fucking pe- evolution
0: in schools these days. Yeah, people are still talking about it. You scopes monkey trial-looking MFs. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't want to – I won't recommend the book in the sense that it's like I think you'll get a lot out of reading it. I will say, of course, you know, I will the, – the the book and all the source material we talk about, as always, will be linked uh, in, the, in, in the show Of course. If you want to buy it, go ahead and and, like, you know – if, if by some weird
1: phenomenon, the, the, Jay J- and, and John, you guys are listening to this and made it this far into us shitting on you. Like, you know, you're probably good guys. You know, if we hung out, I'm, I'm sure it would be a good time. So, you know, don't take any of this too much to heart. You're just sort of freaks.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, and we're all freaks a little bit, aren't we? We're all freaks. We're all freaks uh, a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John and Jay, exactly. Like Sam said, if you're listening, uh, you know, this may have come off as being a bit ad hominem. Uh, and, uh, which it was, and it was, was, but yes, we, uh, you know, anyone listening, if you want to buy the book, uh, if it's within your means, you know, I'm sure these guys worked hard on this book. So if it's within your means, they definitely, they definitely worked hard and, you know, I'm sure,
1: you know, I, I, numerous times I specifically insulted their intelligence. I am very confident that like, if I read their like PhD dissertations, I'd be like, oh, this is very well written. Yes. So
0: there you go. For For sure. For sure. Sam, why don't we, uh, th- as, our, as, our, as our final um, the final portion of this podcast, why don't we rate The Hobbit Party? Uh, let's rate it out of uh, five, I don't know, what, 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 what should we rate it out of? Five what? Five Walmart shopping carts. Okay, yeah, let's, let's rate it out of five Walmart shopping carts. Uh, what would you say? I would give it 0. .5 out of five. Point. So half a shopping cart?
1: I'd give it half a shopping cart. Actually, no. I give it one because enough of it's funny that it gets a one.
0: Yeah, you five. know, I think that. Yeah, I think I'll give it one shopping cart as well, and <laughs> I think it's a shopping cart. There's nothing in the shopping cart. I'd like to say the shopping cart is completely empty, which is uh, which is itself a, a, a indicative of the 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 bankruptcy of everything that this book is is ostensibly arguing for, and uh, that was our. That was our first uh, book review on the Entmoot podcast. Uh, hopefully uh you the listener had as much fun as uh, as we did talking about this book uh Sam I had yeah, I read a blast yeah I had a great time talking about this book uh, m- it was much more fun talking about it than than reading it listeners we will uh we'll talk to you next time. thanks so much for for listening and uh and for and for supporting us Sam it was a, it was a pleasure as always
1: yeah, yeah good times good times all around peace bye bye.
0: podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harpel. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.